there are some people where their DNA profile shows them to be actually older or younger than they are. So their DNA methylation age is either older or younger than their chronological age. Human OS. Learn. Master. Achieve. Welcome back, everyone. This is Dan Pardee, and today I have with me Dr. Ken Raj. Ken is a senior scientific group leader at Public Health London. He has worked extensively with Dr. Steve Horvath of UCLA, developing and interpreting genomic biomarkers of aging, including most famously the epigenetic clock, which we'll discuss today. So without further ado, Ken, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi. For our audience less familiar with some of the terms, what is the difference between genetics, genomics, and epigenetics? Genetics would be things which are associated or deal with the sequence of the DNA, the ACGTs that that make up the sequence. And that can be things that include things such as mutations, for example, where the sequence of the DNA is changed. Epigenetics, put simply, it encompasses several things, but the common feature between those several things is that they do not actually involve the change to DNA sequences. So the most common ones you will find as part of epigenetics is a methylation on some residues on DNA, on nucleotides, such as cytosine. So methylation of cytosines is a very common modification that does not change the base, but it can have a profound effect on the expression of genes okay, from the region or slightly away from the region where the methylation occurs. There are other elements of epigenetics, such as modifications on histones, proteins that DNA wrap around. And people have also included things now, such as small RNA, microRNA, RNA that do not code for proteins, but can regulate gene expression. So these are things that come under a cluster of epigenetics, basically changes that control or regulate gene expression that does not involve the mutation of the sequence of DNA. When I was first learning about it, the prefix epi was helpful to meet my own understanding. So epi means above, so above the genes, which I was, okay, so this is not the genes themselves, but it's affecting what kind of proteins ultimately are produced. Wonderful. So we talked about some of the mechanisms there involved. It's interesting, we just tweeted that men whose fathers smoked at a time of pregnancy have a 50% lower sperm count compared to men with non-smoking fathers. And this finding was independent of the mother's exposure to nicotine. And so this speaks to the heritability element of epigenetics. And so these things, while not a part of our genes, seem to be able to be passed down. What do we know about that? It is somewhat surprising on one hand because it is known that DNA methylation, for example, the one that's most common, is often or largely erased in germ cells and that it is not largely preserved. But on the other hand, there are areas, there are such segments of the DNA where these epigenetic changes are actually preserved and they do actually get on to the next generation. Now, how this happens and why this happens or the selection and which region of DNA where the epigenetic markers are maintained 
maintained is still not very well known. It is just at this stage, we can only describe it and say it happens, but it doesn't happen to all aspects or all regions of epigenetic markers, but it happens to a selection of epigenetic markers that actually gets inherited to the next generation. So some sort of exposure within a lifetime can then be passed down, affecting the regulation of genes in subsequent generations. And do we know how many generations has that been observed to travel? I personally do not know that. And I think you will need a very large number to do that study because of the segregation and the dilution of that as you move along. But in theory, if you get it there, you would think that if you can pass it on from one generation, you would think that it might quite easily move on to the next generation. But I have to say I'm treading on very dangerous ground here because I have got no data to support that. I'm just uh, making a supposition here. Right. Let's jump to your work with Steve Horvath, who is a researcher at UCLA. You guys have done a lot of work on something called the epigenetic clock. So what is the epigenetic clock and what exactly is this clock measuring? Okay. So I must say at this point that my collaboration with Steve is very productive and nice. And this whole thing started with Steve himself. And I'm here somewhat representing him. Steve is a mathematician. And what Steve did was to question whether the observed changes of DNA methylation as we age can be used to correlate with our age. What has been known for some time is as we age, our DNA methylation profiles, so that means there are some sites become more methylated, some parts of the DNA become less methylated, but generally there is an epigenetic drift. Now, a drift tells you that something changes, but it doesn't tell you that it changes to any specific degree. And for many years, it was not thought that there was any specificity or any high-end resolution of the change in function of age. Now, what Steve did then was to take data that is already available of DNA methylation profiles profiles that's freely available that could be correlated to the age of the DNA profiles from which it was obtained. So we're talking about thousands of profiles of people with known age. And then he used machine learning methods to look at these profiles effectively, to put it simply, to almost do a face recognition type. But here we are looking at DNA methylation profiles of each of this. And the machine just looks through this and learns to identify or correlate profiles to age. And by doing so, and with his mathematical wizardry, he managed to come up with an algorithm that can take a DNA methylation profile of cells and correlate that and say that particular profile would suggest that the person is of a particular age. And that is something that was surprising because we did not think until then that the epigenetic drift has such high specificity in its correlation with chronological age. Wasn't it questioned at first because of the correlation was so high that people almost <laughs> were in disbelief? It was questioned at first. It's one of these strange things where your data is too good to be true. <laughs> it was questioned first, and it still is questioned today. But for those uninitiated, uh, when it is brought up, it's almost like in disbelief that you could have the precision of age prediction to that high degree. But it does. It does really have that high degree of age prediction. It is to plus minus three years, about three years. 
what is it, about 350 different sites that this algorithm and neural network is looking at in its calculation to predict age? Correct. Initially, the data that was presented to the machine was data of at least 27,000 CPGs, as we kind of refer to them. So from these 27,000, many of them were related with age. Their changes were related with age. But from these, the machine was able to pick up the ones that were most predictive of age. And this amounted to about 353 CPGs, of which not all of them are changing in one direction. Some of these CPGs increase methylation in function of age. Some of these CPGs decrease methylation in function of age. If people are unfamiliar with CPGs, what is that looking at? Okay, the CPGs are effective. It's a very simple thing. It's just that we have ACGTs in our DNA sequence, and any Cs that come before a G is referred to as a CPG. The P refers to the phosphate bonds that link the cytosines to the guanines, okay? And it is the Cs that are uh, methylated, not the Gs. So so when we talk about CPG methylation, we, we refer specifically only to the methylation of the cytosines. Are the methylation changes that are being recorded playing a direct role in the aging process? Do we know if they're driving the process? That is actually the question that we are working on now. We do not know if they are a consequence of change that is related to age or if they are driving the change that causes one to age, right? So whether it's a passenger or a driver, it is a question that has yet to be answered. Let's talk about the difference between chronological age and biological age. So what is the difference there? So when Steve got this algorithm going, he put it to test anything that we get hands on, DNA profiles with age relation, to see how accurate this algorithm is. For most of the time, the DNA methylation age, which is used to define the prediction of age by the algorithm, that's called the DNA methylation age. Most of the time, the DNA methylation age corresponds very well with the actual age of the person which we refer to as chronological age. You can look at a passport and you know how old you are. So that's a chronological age. But there are outliers which are really, really interesting. Now, there are some people where their DNA profile shows them to be actually older or younger than they are. So their DNA methylation age is either older or younger than their chronological age. Okay. Now, we could say that that could be due to errors, that maybe the method is not very good, or it could be due to a mistake in DNA collection or something else. Now, this could very well be the case, but it turned out that it is not. It has actually got greater meaning than that. How did he know that? Because when he looked at uh, cohorts who experience or who are suffering from or who have pathologies or have conditions which are related to aging. For example, people who suffer from Alzheimer's, Parkinson's. What he found was people who suffer from these pathologies have DNA methylation age that is greater than their chronological age. So when you see that, you know then that the discrepancy that you observe is not a mistake, that it has a correlation to a phenotype of aging. So then we say, if this person, let's say, is 50 years old, but his DNA methylation age is 60 years old, okay, he's aging faster than his chronological age. So we say then that his biological age is 60, even though his passport would tell us that he's 50. Right. And vice versa. So you can see people that are younger compared to their chronological age. So their biological age might be 40, 
even though they're 50, or as you said, their biological age could be 60, even though they're 50. And I imagine then trying to understand what are those factors for both phenotypes will be really helpful in us understanding how to intervene. And so that's what you're looking into now. Correct. Yes. You've also been looking into life expectancy. So if you can look at these markers of biological age, does that correlate with life expectancy in an individual? And do you see any discrepancies between somebody who might be 50 years old, but their biological age looks like they're 60, but they still maintain health? It doesn't quite match up in terms of other phenotypic elements of how they're showing up. So firstly, it's important to remember that when we do these sort of studies, or when Steve does these sort of studies, it is not possible to take it down to an individual just yet. We can't say that an individual will definitely demonstrate a particular phenotype if it has got a biological age that is greater than his chronological age. We are looking at the probability that this person would develop a certain pathology. Okay, so it's not a certainty because most things in biology is anyway, it's on probability. It's like probability of getting cancer. It's not a certainty of getting cancer, so on and so forth. Right whether there will be people who will have greater biological age and still be healthy, well, I think you can put your house on that. There will be people like that. But that does not prove one way or another that this is right or wrong. If you take maybe a thousand people, then you will see the majority of them who have greater biological age will then present with a certain pathology. So that's definitely clear. Now, I can't remember the first question you asked me. Life expectancy and the oh, right, life clock. Expectancy. Now, strangely, this is a very fascinating one. The short answer is yes, you can actually predict life expectancy. More precisely, what Steve used the term is, which is time to death. Now, although this particular algorithm, which we refer to as epigenetic clock, this 353 CPGs can predict that, Steve has come up with better clocks, okay, better algorithms that predict time to death, even to a far greater accuracy than this one. This one can already do it, but he has come up with better ones that can predict that. You can predict that's one thing, but what's more useful is to correlate things to life expectancy. And what is correlated is If you have biological age that is younger than your chronological age, that correlates with longer life than if you have greater biological age compared to your chronological age, which I think makes a lot of sense. And what is also important is that the things that we associate with good aging, such as good diet, exercise, these things are also correlated with younger biological age. Basically, lifestyle that's bad for you is correlated with greater biological age. And if I may just add this point that if you read Steve's paper, you will find a phrase that is used often, which is called age acceleration, acceleration of epigenetic age. And acceleration, if it's positive, that means that person is aging biologically faster than his chronological age. And if age acceleration is negative, then he's aging biologically slower than his chronological age. And if it's zero, then he's aging as you would expect from his chronological age. There are commercially available epigenetic tests. I've done one through Osiris Green, which is created by Neil Copes, who's been a guest on the show talking about beta-hydroxybutyrate and its longevity properties. From what you've seen, how tight can we get this age prediction down to? So there are many different methods that people have come up with other than DNA methylation, but so far none is closer to the actual number than DNA methylation. So in terms of method, it is still the best method. 
Now, in terms of algorithms, there are several people that have come up with their own epigenetic clocks, their epigenetic measures of age, and they vary in their accuracy and in their range, how far they can go. And so far, I think the ones that is the closest we can get to if I'm not mistaken, is about three years, two to three years, maybe. I stand corrected if someone comes and points out that there is another one that I missed out. But, but I think it wouldn't be too far from that. If somebody were to get this test done, at what speed can you see changes in epigenetic age take place? So let's say somebody gets one of these tests done. That motivates them to start doing some things to live a healthier lifestyle. Would they need to wait five years to get tested again to have visibility if they've had an impact? The short answer is no, we do not know. As you can imagine to do that, you, you do need quite a bit of studies, isn't it? You really need quite a bit of people recruited to do that because, again, in biology, we're always working at the average. You know, Just a handful wouldn't give you any reliable answer to your question. So this has not been done yet, at least not prospectively. Now, retrospectively, maybe some data can be fished out from databases and then be looked at, but not to my knowledge, no. Now, speaking of things that can affect this, certain lifestyle factors like diet, exercise, they do affect the clock, as you alluded to. What are some of the things that have been researched to show an impact in epigenetic aging? Okay, uh, diet is one. So you can almost suspect and your suspicion will be right that those things which are good for you, things like vegetables, okay, would be associated with a negative age acceleration and things which are bad for you, like a lot of red meat and things like that would be associated with positive age acceleration. You won't find many things to be a surprise. What you would expect would largely turn out to be correct. Things which are good will turn out to be negative age acceleration and then things which are bad will be the other way around. It seems like cumulative life stressors seem to have an impact here. So even things like socioeconomic factors, education level, things that might correlate with psychological stress, high vegetable intake and fish, quitting obesity, exercising seem to be good. But like you said, they probably won't be that much of a surprise. On one hand, it's unfortunate because we like surprises. It'll be great if we find something unexpected. But on the other hand, it's somewhat comforting that this method, which was identified using machine learning, can come up with the same conclusions in regards to what is good for us that matches the conclusion that were derived from other means, from clinical means. So it's a pretty good validation of what it is actually seeing. Speaking of cumulative life stress, Dr. Horvath has suggested that the epigenetic clock is measuring cumulative work done by this epigenetic maintenance system to maintain epigenetic stability. So is this having a protective role in things like cancer? That's one of the things that Steve has proposed. Steve has a model whereby he thinks that perhaps there is a epigenetic maintenance system called EMS. It has not been characterized. If it exists, it certainly has not yet been characterized. But for what it's worth, if there's EMS to maintain the DNA methylation status in a cell, he believes that if a cell is stressed, this EMS will go into overdrive to try to maintain epigenetic stability. And this overdrive actually bits itself or manifests itself as increased epigenetic aging. So that is one way to see it. Now, I have to stress that Steve himself would agree that this is a proposition. It has not yet had any clear empirical backing to that, but it's an interesting hypothesis. If 
epigenetic markers are reflecting repair to DNA damage, then things that might influence that could actually interfere with things like cancer. So the analogy with senescence in my mind, you don't really want to prevent senescence, but you want to clear it after it's occurred. Here, you don't want to necessarily affect those epigenetic factors that are reflecting DNA damage repair, but maybe there's a way to intervene circuitously to then make that process age slower. So how do you then induce less DNA damage? That's probably the main thing we're after here. So that's what Steve was now getting at, it's a possibility. And it's interesting that you mentioned senescence, for example, because one of the things that will immediately pop up in most people's minds, it said, is epigenetic aging that we are talking about, is that a measure of senescent cells in the body? Because it would make sense if it does, because it's senescent cells reportedly accumulate in our body in function of age. And would the DNA methylation profiles that correlate so well with age that we call epigenetic aging, would it be a profile that is derived from the increased number of senescent cells in the body? So this was one of the things that we thought initially to be the case. But when we did our work, the results were quite clear that although senescent cells increase in number in function of age, the DNA methylation aging algorithm do not actually measure senescent cells. So it is a distinct form or a distinct route of aging from that of senescent cells. So with the work in synolytics and synomorphics, if you can clear them, perhaps that could be something that might affect the rate of epigenetic aging if inflammation is part of the cause of accelerated aging. From that route, it's possible, yes, that can be the case. What's clear is that if we have a dish of cells that are prevented from getting into senescence, for example, if you stop them from getting into replicative senescence by expressing telomerase, the cells will continue to grow and they become immortal, all right? And yeah. yet, in function of time, these cells continue to age, which is basically the answer to the question is, what is the relationship, if there is one, between senescence and epigenetic aging? And here we can see that even in the absence of replicative senescence, epigenetic aging continues to increase in function of time. How about drugs? The major classes of epigenetic drugs that are currently in use are DNA methylation inhibitors, bromine mm. domain inhibitors, histone acetyltransferase inhibitors. So there's a variety of things that can affect this. Are any of those being investigated currently to oh. modify this clock? It is, in fact, being done in my incubator right now. Great. So we don't have the answer to that yet. One of the things that may be worth mentioning is that what Steve has managed to do is to actually carry out research from the less common end, which is that he's able to have a method that looks at the end point, which is the human body itself, and demonstrate age. And we are moving backwards towards the cells in the dish and to try to establish assays of aging in the dish so that then we can do all these tests that you were talking about. Because most other discoveries are done the other way around, where we do things in vitro and then we try to get it in vivo. He got it from the organism and then we try to move it back to the plate. Why? Because we can't do all these tests that you said with all these compounds by feeding people with it, obviously. So we have to feed cells with it. And that is why since his discovery of this algorithm, Together with him, I have been working to establish an in vitro model of aging in the laboratory so that we can test all these wonderful drugs and inhibitors that you were talking about to interrogate their effect on epigenetic aging. It seems very promising to me. If you just overexpress H3 and H4, you can extend lifespan. To me, it makes sense. If you lose histones or if you lose nucleosomes and the DNA is then more accessible to 
DNA damaging agents, then you could have more aberrant transcription. And it just seems like a vicious cycle. As I alluded to earlier, the ketogenic diet is becoming popular within anti-aging science space. Beta-hydroxybutyrate acts as a HDAC inhibitor. Neil Cope's work showed that it promoted life extension in C. elegans. And mm-hmm. Eric Verdon and John Newman and others at Buck and UCSF, they're keen on looking at butyrates and, and their properties as signaling molecules to affect epigenetics. So I'm excited about that because that is a lifestyle intervention we can do now. Absolutely. So we talked about epigenetic age mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. biological age. What are some other uses of this technology that humans can benefit from? Okay, I think the obvious one we cannot run away from is that if we can find compounds that mitigate epigenetic aging, that would be one potential. I'm a bit uncomfortable talking about things like this because we know there are many promises made about many things that never worked out. But for what it's worth, I think it's quite obvious that barring complications that we cannot foresee, if we can find compounds that either slow down or stop epigenetic aging, now that may not be possible. If we do, that would perhaps move towards a, a healthy aging. It will not stop you from aging altogether, but it can help you to have better aging where you will be healthier. Because remember that epigenetic aging is only one of the roots that lead to the final aging phenotype because there is still the senescence-mediated aging. But certainly if we slow down one, it would only be good if we can do that barring unexpected consequences that we cannot at the moment predict. So that would be one aspect. And the other aspect would be also, apart from drugs, or compounds, it would be finding out things within our natural diet. What are the things that can be helpful in slowing down epigenetic aging? That would be nice. Potentially, if better systems are developed, we can also look at lifestyle and try to understand what aspect of lifestyle, even though we know some aspects like exercises and things like that can contribute, but what is it about exercise that contribute? Is it exhaustion? Is it greater intake of oxygen? What actually about exercise that helps? So now that we have a way to measure the rate of aging, this really changes again because prior to this, how would you test whether something has an effect on age? You just can't take people and give them something and hope that within a year you will see a difference because you might not see a difference within a year. You might have to wait 10 years. And that makes such kind of research really difficult. But with this objective way of measuring aging, we can actually shorten testing regimes that we can now start to do very empirical and well-controlled experiments, either in the laboratory or even using animal models to try to pin down what are the elements, be it in drugs, in diets, in lifestyle, that actually can help slow down epigenetic aging. Diagnosing age-related conditions could also be one of the possible utilities here. If you can identify pathology earlier, then you can treat it usually more effectively. I'll be interested to see how this identification of somebody's biological age could potentially lead to better mitigating therapies for higher likelihood of having a variety of age-related diseases, cancer, diabetes, etc. That was actually one of the first things that came to mind. The reason I never brought that up as one of my answers is that it is a double-edged sword, isn't it? What you said was right, that they are the noble 
end of those things that they say if we can predict, we can perhaps be ready and we can try to mitigate it by other means. But you can see that it can also be an issue in terms of insurance, for example, users that are not necessarily so useful or helpful for humans. So that may be something that will have to be dealt with in a more holistic way to look at it from the ethical aspect as well. Yeah. You alluded to some of the things that you're working on now. What are some of the big areas related to this work that you're going to be investigating in the coming months to years? In terms of the pure science question, I definitely want to know what is this epigenetic aging. Its predictive powers is no longer in doubt. Its potential use is no longer in doubt. But we really need to get to the mechanism. What determines the ticking rate? The ticking rate I refer to is the methylation or the demethylation of CPGs that are related to age. What causes them to change? And of course, that gets into the question you asked me in the beginning. Are these changes merely passengers or are they the real drivers of aging? This is a question that is so difficult to answer because the separating cause to effect is not the easiest thing to do sometimes. You know, if you've got the right model, you can do it very easily. But if not, you keep going around and around in circles. But that is certainly, to me, the biggest question to ask. If this epigenetic aging is going to feature very prominently in the future of our health processes, We really need to get down to the bottom of the mechanism. What are we looking at? We want to know what we are measuring, not just sufficient to know that it's very accurate, but what really drives it. So that, to me, is number one. It'd be very interesting to also know, is it simply reflective of aging or is it causative? And does that change? So once you reach a certain point, Mm -hmm. then it also is causative more than just reflective. Should young children have an epigenetic age done so that we understand, for instance, their aging relative to the burden of methylation that passed down to that generation? Are young children perhaps older than their counterparts based off of previous exposures of other generations? Hmm, that's an interesting one. Of course, it can be done. It will require, again, a very large cohort and a very good cohort, a good quality cohort where we know what people are exposed to. And it'll be a very long-term study because you want to compare it to their actual chronological age. The answer is always yes, it can be done. Has it been done at the moment? No. But we know one thing. There is a limited number of longitudinal studies that has looked at something like this. Not exactly what you've asked, but look at something like this. And what we find is that, for what it's worth, is that if a person exhibits age acceleration at one point in their life, and if you take this person and analyze the DNA again, let's say 10 years down the road, that person's DNA will also continue to exhibit age acceleration. So the rate of aging seems to be quite fixed. It does not mean it cannot change if you do something to it. That, That does not mean that, but it means that its rate, if left unperturbed, will remain as it is. So if you age faster, you will continue to age faster all along. If you age slower, you'll continue to age slower all along. That appears to be the case so far with the limited number of longitudinal studies that have been carried out. From a behavior perspective, these tests are now in the marketplace. If somebody gets back a biological age that is older than their chronological age, perhaps that accelerated aging was something that that person was born with or occurred earlier in life for whatever reason. And if somebody's trying to do everything well now, they get that piece of data and they say, well, I need to change everything up because it's not working. But maybe they're actually doing as much as they could from a behavioral perspective, Mm. a lifestyle perspective to mitigate that accelerated aging. So many questions, but also some caveats for those who are looking into that number now. 
what will be the sequence of how frequently should you get an epigenetic test done if you're somebody who wants to look into that information to assess if how you're living is acting propitious to your epigenetic mechanisms. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Well, the, sadly, the, the short answer is I don't know. I don't think yeah. anybody knows. At this yeah, moment, totally. I don't think anybody knows. <laughs> Ken, this is so interesting. So my last question for you is, will Steve Horvath win a Nobel Prize for his work here? <laughs> you're a betting man. Is it over 50%? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think I think he should. That's my view. I think he should. I think that was his contribution will certainly be very significant in the coming years. All right. And it's been five years since he discovered this. Now I know papers don't mean anything if it doesn't impact human life, but the papers that come out from his publications are very close to human life. It's not the kind of papers that talk just about how something works in a cell that is far removed from human health. But yeah. a lot of the papers that come up from that based on his discovery are really dealing with actual day-to-day human health, human life. So I think his contribution will see the light of day in a way that it deserves. And when that happens, I think, yeah, that's probably going to come. This is so fascinating. Everything in the aging space now has captivated my mind, and I'm trying to do the best that I can for my audience to translate why this is so darn interesting if you do care about your health, Mm because hopefully within a lifetime, this will be something that'll have increasing meaning to be a biomarker that we can act upon. I hope so. So thank you again for your time and all the work you're doing. Thank you. Thanks for listening and come visit us soon at humanos.me.